Thank you so much, Deacon Jinwei. Uh, I think the LCD team was trying to test your scripture memory. <laughs> right, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, everyone. Uh, please keep your Bibles open to Romans 2 and 3. And also, uh, if you like, a simple outline is provided for you as well in the bulletin. So you can download that. <clears throat> Would you please join me in prayer? Prepare our hearts, O God, to hear your word and obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, we know that this month we are conducting this DG and church-wide survey, right? So since we are doing that, uh, I thought we will start with a simple survey today as well, right? But this will not take 10 minutes. It will just take 10 seconds, right? So let me do question number one. Among us who are present today, who has a driving license? Can I just see a show of hands? Oh, slightly less in this service, huh? Okay, so now those of us who are drivers, this question is for you. Who think that your driving skills are better than average? All very humble. <laughs> Jordan, okay, I see your hand. Now, if you think it secretly in your heart, I allow you now to turn to your family and friends who are your passengers and ask them, is that so? Is, is my driving really better than average? Well, perhaps like me, you have been driving for decades and you've never had a major accident. You have zero demerit points, right? So not too bad. So we feel entitled to rage against drivers who hot. Now they drive too slow and they hot the lane or those who switch lanes without signaling. But did you know that 80% of drivers think that they are better than average? Now think about that, let it sink in. 80% think they are better than average. That can't be true, right? Because statistically, only 50% are better than average. So I think the, the result is likely the same, whether you conduct such a survey among the employees in the company, or the teachers or students in the school, or even uh, if you ask who is a, who you think is a, do you think you are better than average parent or child? Who thinks they are better than average among their peers? On a scale of one to 10, people think they, they, they tend to rate themselves either seven or eight. And this reflects a human condition called illusory superiority. It's a natural bias that we have, whereby we overestimate our own qualities and abilities relative to others. Now, along with this illusory superiority, is a tendency to judge others as lesser than ourselves. And I must say, Christians are not exempt from this. A 2022 survey entitled Jesus in America. The survey results found that more than half of Christians polled in the United States associate positive characteristics like giving, compassionate, loving, and respectful with themselves, and less than a fifth see judgmental as a mark of their lives. On the other hand, when this same survey is done on those from other faiths, as well as the non-religious, the results are quite different. They rank judgmental, hypocritical, and self-righteous as the top three characteristics of Christians. 
while less than one in five would call us giving, compassionate, or loving. Now, the results are so depressing, right? So humbling to us. But I'm sure that Christians in Singapore will do better than this, right? Or maybe that's just our illusory superiority speaking. Well, the Lord Jesus warns the self-righteous in Matthew chapter 7. He says, You hypocrite, first take the lock out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. So brothers and sisters, we shall do well to heed the Lord's warning and to acknowledge, as our subject for today says, that none is righteous apart from Christ. Earlier on, Paul had already established in Romans that the Gentile pagans who are described in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, that they are under the wrath of God. And this, why so? This is on account of three things. Their idolatry, immorality, and antisocial behavior. In judgment, God gives them over or gives them up to their ungodliness as the present ongoing revealing of his wrath on sinners. But you see, Paul's words here that speak about this Gentile pagans may have led his Roman Christian audience to feel self-righteous and judgmental towards the others. And so now the Apostle Paul writes Romans 2 and 3, likely to this predominantly Jewish Christian audience. Uh, in a sense, if chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 is describing the prodigal son who went away, then Romans 2 and 3 addresses his elder brother. Because in the end, in Jesus' parable, both sons are lost. Paul tells them that these Roman Christians, they are no better than the pagans, whether they be moral critics or Jewish law keepers. In the end, none is righteous. Only Jesus is better, and our righteousness is found only in him. First, Paul builds the case that moral critics are no better. In verse 1, we read, shall we read this together? Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgments on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Here, Paul is engaging in what we call a diatribe, or a conversation with an imaginary dialogue partner. He calls him, O man. Paul is not exclaiming, O man. Okay, but here, this old man, here in verse 1, as well as later in verse 3, represents everybody who judges the immoral pagan and yet does the same thing themselves. That is the moral critique. Paul says that those who think of themselves as more moral and so judges others, they are also condemned because they too are offenders. They practice the very same things that's referred to, referring to the anti-social behavior uh, that's describing the pagans in chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. And so the list of anti-social behavior goes like this. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, 
slanderous, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, the audience, these Jewish moralists, they may not practice idolatry and immorality as overtly as the Gentile pagans do, but they are just as susceptible, they are just as susceptible to and culpable for the same antisocial acts and attitudes. And therefore, Paul warns them not to be too hasty to judge others, but as the Lord taught us, to first take the lock out of their own eye, and then they will see clearly to take the speck out of their brother's eye. In the same way, brothers and sisters, if we judge others, we should also be prepared to be held accountable to this same standard. Now, to give you a bit of glimpse into my family life, sometimes after dinner, uh, if I'm home, I'll sit with my wife and the kids to watch this game show, Wheel of Fortune. Right? And we try to guess the puzzles together. A particular episode from March last year features what has been called the worst two minutes in the history of Wheel of Fortune. And the history is quite long. Huh? I recall all three contestants struggling to guess this phrase. Now, do you think you can do better? Well, my kids and I certainly thought so. As we, we sat on the couch and we laughed at the contestants, Ayo, again. That is another feather in your cap, right? But really, when placed under the same real-world situations, you and I may not fare any better. So Paul goes on to warn the moralist in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgments of God. I know that this week, a lot of Singaporeans have been gloating over the controversies involving our local politicians, right? So let me ask you now, what was your first response? Was it to pray a prayer for God's justice to be done and for righteousness to reign in Singapore? Likely not, right? Like me, probably the first thing is, Oh, really, uh, that really happened. Uh. We start to gossip, right? And yet when we ourselves slander others or we gossip behind their back or we harbour greed and lust in our own hearts or when we are heartless and ruthless towards our employee or domestic helper, we think that we can escape that judgment. We rejoice when wrongdoers get their just desserts, right? When that rude classmate gets caught up for cheating, when their arrogant colleague gets found out for lying to the boss, or when that reckless driver gets pulled over. And yet when we ourselves cheat, lie, or, or run that red light, we pray that nobody will find out. But Paul warns us that we cannot escape the judgments of God, our divine judge. It may seem like God doesn't know or that he doesn't care because we don't drop dead there and then after sinning. Right? Nobody does that. We sin and straight away die. But just as with Adam and Eve, God's warning that if you sin, you shall surely die will surely come to pass in due course, no matter what lies the devil may give us. 
So why then is there a delay in the judgment? Paul tells us in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, friends, God's delay of his judgment, whether be it for Adam and Eve or for us, is out of his rich kindness and is meant for our repentance. But if you and I remain stubborn in our unrepentance, then God's wrath that is stored up will one day be unleashed on us. And on that day of wrath, what is often called Judgment Day, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that's what Paul says in verse 6 onwards. He says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So from these verses we see, we see first that God's judgment is according to works and impartial. It's not capricious or biased. Bible commentator Douglas Moo points out that there could be this chiastic structure in these verses. And the main point that Paul was making was this, that God will judge each person impartially, assessing each according to the same standard, which is works. I'll just add something very, very small here, that this works that Paul is describing, this doing good, likely refers to first faith, and then obedience in Jesus Christ. As Paul said when he opens the letter in chapter 1, verse 5, through Christ he has received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then Paul closes the letter in chapter 16, verse 26, by speaking of how his gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. So he begins and ends with this obedience of faith. So what then is this obedience of faith? Well, some think that it means our obedience that flows out of our faith in God, or it could be that our faith is the very obedience that God seeks. Regardless which view it is, both can be true. Uh, it's very clear that faith and obedience are inseparable in God's sight and both are indispensable for salvation in the final judgment. This week I've been reflecting, and I realised that I have been a believer now for 33 years. And next year will be my 25th year as part of ARPC. Right? So quite a milestone, and uh, I would say that it's a miracle because of all the things that happened in between, I'm still here. But there's also a danger involved. Because I think the modern moral critique is likely the long-time Christian, the one who's been in church for decades and has served in various ministries 
or held Christian leadership positions. It's so tempting to feel superior over others because of our Bible knowledge or ministry experience. But God looks at our deeds of obedience done in faith, not at our knowledge, our position, and certainly not our accomplishments. I don't know about you, but I shudder whenever I recall or read the Lord's words in Matthew 7, where he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you and I will be those who truly do the will of God, of our Father in heaven, and so get to enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul repeats this phrase twice, right? the Jew first and also the Greek. I think he does so to emphasize that God shows no favoritism. Both punishments and glory come to the Jew first and then also to the Greek or the Gentile. And why is that so? Well, he tells us in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So in other words, as God revealed his attributes to humanity in creation, he also places his law in each one of our hearts. And sometimes we call this the human conscience. And so all humanity is without excuse. And therefore, Paul will go on from here to point to, to show us that Jewish law keepers are no better. They are no better than Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses. Now, here is very clear <clears throat> by here that Paul is talking to Jewish Christians because he says this in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This is how he describes them. These Jewish Christians take great pride that they know and obey the law that they are God's chosen people. They think that they are better than those ignorant Gentiles and they presume to guide them to the truth of God's law. But Paul warns them about the folly of such pride and he tells them three things. First, he warns them of the vileness of their empty boasting. In verse 21, Paul asked them, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob tempers? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. See, having such an inflated sense of their knowledge of the law, these Jewish Christians presume to teach Gentiles, to teach them against stealing, adultery, and idolatry, which are the seventh, eighth, first, and second commandments. But these Jewish law keepers were being inconsistent teachers because their teaching wasn't reflected in their living. As parents of older children should know, there will come a time when do as I say, not as I do, will not work anymore. Because our children can then see through our pretense and our words lose credibility with them. Likewise, these Jewish Christians' inconsistent lives have led to dishonour and blasphemy of God's name among the Gentile pagans. So, brothers and sisters, if you are a proud, cut-carrying Christian at home, in school, or in the office, and, and we should all be right from the beginning because it just gets harder after that, then may your life and mine be always consistent so that our boasting in the Lord may not sound hollow or tarnish God's good name. As the, as the Apostle Peter says, may we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So may, when, whenever people think of us, may the first words that come to their mind be giving, compassionate, loving, and respectful, rather than the opposite, judgmental, hypocritical, and self-righteous. Next, from verse 25, Paul goes on to talk about the value of true circumcision. Addressing the Jewish lawkeepers who are extolling the value of circumcision, Paul tells them, he doesn't outrightly disagree with them, but he tells them in verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. So in other words, Paul agrees with them, partially. Yes, circumcision does have some value. But it is pointless, it's worthless, if you do not also obey the law. So this is a bit like when you own a gym membership, right, you subscribe to a gym membership in the beginning of the year out of guilt, but you don't take time and effort to use it. And so it doesn't contribute at all to our fitness. See, circumcision of the flesh is like that. It doesn't help us unless we obey the law. It doesn't contribute to our spiritual fitness. It's just a human act. Of much greater value, according to Paul, is the circumcision of the heart. For this is executed by God's Spirit. It enables us to obey God's law, and it earns God's praise. Heart circumcision is the true circumcision which fulfills God's promise in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because Israel was powerless to obey his law, God promises there, 
And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. This was also prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah, uh, in, through whom God declares, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. <clears throat> Next, from chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, Paul then vindicates, or he gives the vindication of God's righteousness. Because many of their fellow Jews did not believe in the Messiah, so some of the Jewish Christians seem to be accusing God of being unjust towards them, or being unfaithful by breaking his covenant promise to his people. And so to address this, Paul vindicates God by posing a series of five rhetorical questions and then answering each one of them. So here are the five questions. Question number one, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And his answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Question number two, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul's answer, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See, in these first two questions, Paul was defending God's faithfulness to his covenant. For it was not God who was unfaithful, but the Jews. The Jews had every advantage. They received God's oracles or words, and yet they were unfaithful to God. Next, question number three comes on. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul answers, by no means, for then how can God judge the world? Question number four. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Question, the uh, answer for this. Some people slanderously charge us with saying this. Their condemnation is just. Question number five. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul answers, no, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. See, in these three questions, Paul was showing that God is faithful and just. He's faithful and just not just when he saves Israel, but also when he judges them for sin. So in this way, through these five questions and answers, Paul vindicates God of any charge of wrongdoing, that he is unrighteous or unjust. Instead, he says that it is human beings, us, who are unfaithful and unrighteous. See, in pointing a finger at God, we found three fingers pointing back at ourselves. And so Paul finally concludes, he concludes that none is righteous. And how does he prove it? Well, since these Jewish Christians take great pride in the law, Paul then appeals to the law, this very same law, the Jewish scriptures, to show them that even the law condemns them as sinners. 
And here, if you look at the references, we see that Paul was quoting mainly from the Psalms, as well as Isaiah 59, from these specially curated verses that tell us about our universal sin. But his main point was made at the very beginning, right? None is righteous. No, not one. So what does he say to his Jewish readers? Next slide. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. See, to dispel any lingering sense of superiority over the Gentiles that they may have, Paul establishes that Jews aren't any better. There's no ethnic or national advantage over sin. Whether Jew or Gentile, the law declares that all humanity is collectively and individually under the power and penalty of sin. In verse 19, Paul's purpose for listing these passages from the law to these Jewish Christians become clear because they are those under the law. And he quotes these verses to silence any boasting of superiority and to convict them of their accountability before God. Because no one can be justified or declared right with God by keeping the law. The law only serves to convict us of our sinful nature. It cannot save us from sin. So far, Paul has established for us the bad news. And that bad news is that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So none is righteous. So then what hope do we have? Well, Paul does go on to give us the good news from verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, Paul is telling us this, that Jesus is better and that we can find our righteousness only in him. Our hope is faith or trusting in Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, we have to come to an end. So we're going to leave this portion of God's word for next week. So it's to make you come back for next week. Okay? But in closing, let us draw some lessons or implications for ourselves. First, uh, three words. Firstly, a word for those of us who have been hurt or stumbled by judgmental Christians. Whether these are your parents, church leaders, your family members, your friends or colleagues. Firstly, please accept our apology. Our apology for being hypocritical moralists and legalists, for giving you the impression that we are superior to you, because in truth, we are not. For God's word tells us that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. The Lord Jesus alone is the perfect and sinless human being. And yet he doesn't condemn the ostracized, but rather he eats with them. And he has but the harshest condemnation for the self-righteous hypocrites. Second, a word to those of us who are moral critics and legalists, myself included. Paul's words here speak most directly to us. May the Lord help us to remove the lock in our eyes so that we may then see clearly to help others with the speck in theirs. 
Now, our church doesn't usually practice this. Uh, we did today because our opening passage was Isaiah 59, uh, 53, verse 6. But many churches have this corporate prayer or confession at the start. And I think that practice can actually help us to collectively and individually to acknowledge our sin as we come before God. Perhaps in our discipleship groups and as well as when we do one-to-one, -one, we can also help one another by confessing our sins to one another and praying for each other so that we may be healed. First and foremost, that we ourselves may be healed of our pride. Brothers, sisters, let us not destroy each other by our judgment. This particular saying was attributed and probably is wrongly attributed to Mark Twain. Listen carefully. He says, when I was a boy of 14, my, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished by how much the old man had learned in seven years. Do you get it? Well, I pray that may the Lord cause us to mature in time as well, so that we will see how ignorant we truly are of our own sins. Lastly, a word to those of us who feel like failures because we have failed God morally or we've broken God's law. The good news for us is that our righteousness is not found in what we do, but in what Christ has done for us. So if illusory superiority is when we overestimate ourselves and we think that we are better than others, and low self-esteem is when we have a low estimate of our own self-worth and standing, then God has a remedy for both, and that is his gift of righteousness in his Son. Our worth is not in how we or others perceive us or the things that we do, but in the price that God was willing to pay, the death of his Son to redeem us. Brothers, sisters, friends, let's go to God and pray and give thanks. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Please help each one of us acknowledge that we, too, are sinners in need of his saving. Whether we are moralists who think that we are better than others, or legalists who try to be right through our own efforts, or failures who see no hope for ourselves, please save us from our wandering away from you and from our self-righteousness. Thank you that we can be saved, not by what our hands can do, but by what your Son has done for us on the cross. So please help us to look upon him in faith and live. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.